Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me. It is Monday, February 26th, and I was on the phone, um, and um, the person I was talking to said, well, yeah, you know, like, well, February 28th is next week, and I was like, I think it's this week. And uh, I said, hang on, let me check the calendar. And I was like, yeah, today's Monday, the 26th. So the 28th is this coming Wednesday, which was a revelation to both of us because we were very confused. I hope you did something fun over the weekend, something to give yourself a little bit of a palate cleanser for all the hard political work that you're going to be doing for the foreseeable future. Right, right. I went to see Al Franken last night at City Winery. You know, we'd had him as a guest the week before. And um, I didn't really know what to expect because it was described as Mr. Franken kind of loosey-goosey working up some new material. He's putting together uh, a new act. And uh, as he came out, he said, like, I hope they warned you um, that I'm trying out some new material tonight. Um, But he was, it was almost all, almost entirely political humor. And oh my God, this guy's great. I mean, his observations, he told some SNL stories. He told some stories of his time in the Senate. He answered some questions from the audience and he just commented on what's going on today and Trump and Nikki Haley. And it was, it was wonderful. Um, I don't know that... um, He's appearing anywhere else in the in the Midwest. I know he does a lot of little clubs in New York, which is apparently where he now lives. You know, he still has a place in Minnesota where he was the senator from. But um, I guess his grandkids are in New York. And so he and his wife spend most of their time there. And I know he's been from time to time. He's been going to small comedy clubs in New York to work up some new material, which is kind of interesting. Anywho. If you get a chance to see him and you like political humor, you're going to have a great time. The audience really enjoyed it. So let's uh, look back to Saturday, South Carolina primary. Nikki Haley actually did um, better than a lot of people predicted that she would do. The guesstimates from the experts were that she would pull in about 36 percent of the vote. And I know The rule of thumb is, you know, I mean, she was governor of South Carolina. You know, that should have been an easy win for her. The people of South Carolina should love her. But, you know, I I don't think politics as usual or as as perhaps I should say politics as it used to be exists anymore. So the experts said she'll probably pull about 36 percent. And instead, she was pretty darn close to 40 percent, which was not too bad and is frankly significant given the given the stranglehold Donald Trump has over the party. However, apparently Americans for Prosperity Action, that's the Coke sponsored pack that announced some months ago that they were going to be funding her. Yeah, They uh, apparently were hoping for 
they were hoping for more, shall we say. And they've made an announcement that they are going to, basically they're not going to fund her anymore. They're going to take stock of their spending priorities. Um, I don't know why nobody expected her to win South Carolina. Maybe she was telling them that she was going to was going to be an upset and everything. And so anywho, um, Americans for Prosperity Action, the Coke PAC group, um, says that they're now going to focus on what they view as the competitive Senate and House races. They ain't writing any more checks. They're not paying any more bills for Nikki Haley. Um, Nikki Haley insists that she is going to uh, be on the ballot and continue to campaign through Super Tuesday, which is basically about a week away, March 5th. Um, And that will probably be that. At least that's as far as she's committed. Some people think that it's possible that on Super Tuesday she might and put that might in italics. She might be able to win a state like, say, Virginia. And who knows if that would change the financial picture for her. Um, but she's determined to stay in the race, according to her people, for, till Super Tuesday. She spent a lot of money in South Carolina. I mean, she didn't just sit back and take that state for granted. <clears throat> she, There were people knocking doors. There were ads on television. Like I said, she did better than most pundits expected her to do, but clearly not enough for the Coke network. No more checks for them unless she really turns it around by Super Tuesday. Okay, do we care? Well, we don't care in the sense that we think she's going to win, but it it does cause Donald Trump to spend a little more money campaigning. And it is a thorn in his side. And, And frankly, isn't that a good thing? I mean, really, that's a good thing, don't you think? Jennifer Rubin in today's uh, Washington Washington Post has a really interesting opinion piece, you know, because Nikki Haley only very recently took the gloves off and started telling people that the things Donald Trump was doing weren't normal and that he wasn't the guy. And Jennifer Rubin said, you know, She maybe should have been doing that from the beginning. The Trump voters were never going to be her voters. She had to appeal to the never Trump conservatives, maybe the independents, maybe the Republicans who were whiffling and waffling. But she was so careful. And I mean, the whole time she was running, she was going after Ron DeSantis, for God's sake. And Jennifer Rubin makes a really interesting point. You know, maybe if we'd seen this Nikki Haley, this Nikki Haley might have been a Nikki Haley that was capable of getting maybe Democrats to cross over and vote for her, at least in the primary, of getting independents and middle-of-the-road Republicans, should any of those still exist. Maybe she'd be in a different place right now, but that's not the Nikki Haley we got. And um, the Nikki Haley we've got is on life support. 
And I agree with Chris Christie, who said when he was asked whether or not he would endorse Nikki Haley, and he said no, because as soon as she folds her tent, she's going to endorse Donald Trump. If she's smart, well, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. She's never going to endorse Biden. But if she's smart, she won't endorse anybody. And keep the path clear. What else is going on? Oh, Hungary finally decided that, yeah, it was okay if Sweden entered NATO. Hungary was the one country that was holding that up. Hungary was also holding up um, Sweden's entry into the European Union. And the European Union basically said, we like Sweden a lot more than we like you. And if you don't support this, we are going to start the, the movement to kick you out of the European Union which would cost them a lot of dollars. So they decided that, yeah, and I'm guessing, I don't know whether it was a carrot or a stick, but I'm guessing a similar argument prevailed. You know what, Hungary? Nobody likes you. And we would, if given the choice, we would much rather have Sweden in NATO than you. So you might want to think about your continuing objections here. And Hungary thought about it, and they decided they didn't have any objections. And it could happen. Some people say it could happen by the end of the week. So that's a little, that's a little bit of good news for us, right? So um, Mike Johnson and the Republicans are um, they've rest, they're all rested up after that two week break. Ooh. Yeah, it just makes you want to stretch and crunch. and ah. So they're back. And um, uh, if they don't get their act together by Friday, March 1st, we will see the beginning of a government shutdown. Forget about aid to Ukraine. Forget about aid to Israel. Forget about aid to Taiwan. Um, forget about a budget. Let's see, what else can we forget about? Um, we'll see what, if anything, the Republicans decide to tackle. There is some people are saying that if they really move quickly, they could have a budget by the deadline. <laughs> I know, I know. If they really move quickly, do you think that's going to happen? Um, do you think that suddenly the Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert wing of the Republican Party, do you think over the two week break they changed their mind? Because, you know, they don't want any Democratic votes. And if if they do, man, they're going to be really mad at Mike Johnson. What a thankless job, Speaker of this Congress. What an utterly, utterly thankless job. You know, you look at Mike Johnson and you look at Kevin McCarthy, and if it makes you appreciate Nancy Pelosi all the more, the fact that she kept everybody on the same page, she kept them moving forward, Good for her. Uh, Kristen Welker was bad at back at it, making people mad on Meet the Press. You know, recently she was part of a panel, um, not related to her, not on television. She was speaking at a panel, and somebody asked her about the infamous. Elise Stefanik, why didn't you say anything when Elise Stefanik said that those people indicted for January 6th were hostages? And Kristen Welker, to her credit, said to the person, 
You know, there are sometimes you just wish you could have a do-over. So, um, I don't know who's advising her. Maybe nobody. But, you know, she's trying to, I don't know, be provocative. A lot of people are starting to say that they now miss Chuck Todd, who was was one of the most hated men on television. She had Gavin Newsom on, and she was trying to poke him about, well, Biden may be a great guy, but a lot of people say he's old. And Gavin Newsom, God love him, was having none of it. Was having none of it. Listen to this exchange. There are some pretty stark numbers that you're facing. 76% of voters say they have real concerns about President Biden's ability to serve a second term. Do you think it's responsible for Democrats to put him at the top of the ticket, given those concerns? Responsible. I revere his record. I, I mean, this, what he's done in three years has been a masterclass, close to 15 million jobs. That's eight times more than the last three Republican presidents combined. The economy is booming. Inflation is cooling. It's 0.6 percent more than it was in the summer of 2020 at just 3.1 percent. Wait a second. We have American manufacturing coming back home all because of Biden's wisdom, because of his temperance, his capacity to lead in a bipartisan manner, which is an underrepresented point. And so I have great confidence moving forward. So the answer is absolutely all in in terms of the next four years, the, Joe Biden. These voters, though, are not complaining about his record. They're talking about concerns about his ability to beat Trump, who you've called a, a lightning, a I'm threat, essentially, to the democracy. But in, in private, we've heard a lot of well, we've heard a lot of his allies say publicly in private. He is strong. He's in command. Yeah. He's forceful. Does he need to do more to show? I think he's doing that? everything he needs to do. I mean, he's got an extraordinary record. He's doing everything he needs to do on Ukraine at the moment. He's doing everything he needs to do uh, to reconcile and wrestle some common sense as it relates to a bipartisan approach to address the issue of the border, uh, where the Republicans couldn't take yes for an answer uh, because they don't want to make that a political issue. Uh, He is leading. And so, no, from my humble perspective, not only the last three years have been extraordinary. I've been out with, as you know, on the campaign drive. I was just out in California. I've seen him up close. I've seen him from far. But here's my point. It's because of his age that he's been so successful. It's because of the wisdom and the character that's developed over years that we have the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Bill and the PACT Act and the Safer Communities Act. And because we've seen these bipartisan accomplishments, because of his capacity of understanding, because of his leadership. So the opportunity to express that for four more years, what a gift it is for the American people. And as a Democrat, what a gift for me to make the case for the leader of our party, Joe Biden. Good job, Gavin. You know, a lot of people talk about J.B. Pritzker as a potential presidential candidate, should the need arise. But um, he's not working it like Gavin is. I mean, Gavin is all over the various cable news outlets, all over the Sunday news shows. And this guy is. He's great. He conveys youth and energy and enthusiasm. In addition to the interviews that he's getting, giving, he's also, um, I don't know who, um, exactly who's going to pay for this, but um, he is going to be behind 
a multi-state ad campaign, uh, a six-figure ad campaign that is launching today. Um, it's going to start in Tennessee. And what this ad campaign is designed to do is fight the proposals that are in some Republican-controlled states that are trying to ban out-of-state travel for abortions and related medications. Not only do the red states want to ban abortion, but they want to prevent this. And this is, you know, this is this is serious stuff. One of the tenets, one of the founding platforms of our country is that, yes, we're a group of separate states, but we act as one. And there are no travel restrictions of any kind between the states. And red states are trying to figure out how they can criminalize women who leave the state to get an abortion. And um, Gavin Newsom is going to be behind an ad campaign that is going to run in those states. I believe it is going to begin in Tennessee. Um, the, The bill in Tennessee creates a felony offense of abortion trafficking. Abortion trafficking. Making it a crime for adults who help anybody under the age of 18 get an abortion. Um, the bill would also allow civil lawsuits for the wrongful death of an unborn child that was aborted. Oklahoma, Mississippi, and, you know, big surprise, Alabama are considering a laws very much like this. Handmaid's Tale, baby, Handmaid's Tale. Richard Haas last week was on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and he and Joe Scarborough were talking about basically how the Republican Party has just utterly lost its way, lost its mind, lost its values, lost its core. As Nikki Haley said, what you are seeing now is not normal. And we can't ever get to the point where we pretend it is. This was a great conversation. I only have, um, I have under a couple of minutes to share with you, but I thought they were, they made some really thoughtful points. This is Richard Haas and, uh, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe last week. Listen to this. Richard, explain how unimaginable it is that this Republican Party has become so twisted and so perverted in its foreign policy under Donald Trump. But Joe, you, you, Mika used the word grotesque. You just used the word unimaginable. Unconscionable comes to, uh, to mind. But this is a Republican Party that has turned its back on its own principles, on its own DNA. They've moved about as far from the party of Ronald Reagan and either one of the George Bushes as you can can move. They've become isolationist. They've become pro-authoritarian. They've become anti-democracy here at, at, at home. Uh, this is, you know, we are, you know, we are where we are. And the, the, the costs of this are extraordinary. Here we are, we're up against, we're a day away from the second anniversary of Russia's invasion, of, or second invasion, if you will, of Ukraine. 
coming eight years after their uh, invasion of 2014. Ukraine has been holding its own for two years, and now you've got, because of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, Ukrainians are losing real estate and they're losing lives. And it's unthinkable to imagine what happens to these young men when they're taken prisoner by the Russians. And none of this is baked into the cake. None of this needed to happen. This is simply because the United States has pulled the rug out from under Ukraine. And the consequences of this are awful for Ukraine, for all of Europe, coupled with uh, Donald Trump's comments about NATO. Uh, and Amer- the, you know, the old line, the entire world is watching. Well, guess what? The entire world is watching. And we now have a Republican Party that's playing with the basics of who we are here at home and what we have been for 75 years in the world. Interesting, isn't it? I think it's very interesting. One last thing that I want to uh, share with you. Uh, We spent a lot of time last week talking about this. Some shocking, truly shocking move by the Alabama Supreme Court that basically has brought in vitro fertilization in that state to a halt. Um, Because those frozen cells are now children, extra uterine children. And um, at least three major medical centers now have said no more IVF. Senator Tammy Duckworth has been trying to get IVF legislation at the federal level for a while now. When she first proposed it, she had bipartisan support. There were Republicans that were ready to sign on. This uh, Sunday, she talked with Martha Raddatz over on ABC's Sunday News Show. She talked about where that IVF bill stands now. Listen to this. You you introduced a bill last month to safeguard IVF access nationally. The National Republican Senate campaign arm is instructing their candidates to, quote, clearly and concisely reject efforts by the government to restrict IVF. So do you think you can now get Republican support to pass your bill? It's been crickets since the the, uh, Alabama ruling. And let's make it clear, Republicans will say whatever they need to say to try to cover themselves on this, but they've been clear, and Donald Trump has been the guy leading this effort to eliminate women's reproductive rights and reproductive choice. And so this is the next step. And by the way, not a single Republican has reached out to me on the bill. I've introduced a bill multiple times, now multiple Congresses. Um, But frankly, you know, let's see if they vote for it when when we bring it to the floor. Frankly, let's see if they vote for it when we bring it to the floor. And that will be the real test, because, you know, Republican leadership, particularly in the Senate, has told anybody running for office in 2024, you've got to say you support IVF. You've got to say you are completely supportive of in vitro fertilization. Okay, that's because it is. You, you thought abortion was a losing issue? Well, that ain't nothing compared to how we're going to lose on IVF. We shall see. We shall see. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have a primary vote coming up here in March. And then, of course... <laughs> Another vote in November. Um, there are going to be uh, lots of local and state and national positions for us to consider, lots of judicial positions for us to consider. 
One of the people who is campaigning to retain her job is Iris Martinez, clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. She joins us now to talk about her reelection campaign. Iris, how are you? How are you, Joan? Good to hear from you. Good to hear from you, too. So um, as you campaign uh, to hold on to this job, what is it that you want people to know? Well, Joan, uh, three years ago when I took over this office, uh, it was an open seat. I ran. I won uh, against, uh, you know, the party's endorsement. I won. An, uh, I won. I won a position uh, because, you know, as a former legislator, I was a senator for 20 years. And before that, I served in the city of Chicago for 20 years. So I have the 40 years of public service behind me as it is, in a sense. And I knew that the office of the clerk needed, needed a lot of transformation. When we took over, we came in the, in the middle of COVID. We had an office that had no clerks. We had to bring the clerks back in a safe environment during COVID in 2020 when I took over. And we've been able to transform this office. We opened up a call center right now uh, about uh, uh, less than about five, uh, less than a year ago, we opened up a call center. And that call center today has already sealed over 316,000 calls that people have been able to be serviced over the phone uh, with a, a clerk and also an interpreter uh, if it's needed in over 200 languages. Very proud of that because, you know, with, with the after the COVID and people still being a little bit scared of coming to the courts, we want to make sure that, you know, people can just call and that they can get their business taken care of over the phone. We're going to do just that. Another area that I really worked on was when I came here, we were under a Shackman decree. A Shackman decree, as you know, Joan, that is something that's been uh, uh, Shackman, uh, but the violations about picking and tiring. I, I, I was under federal monitor watch here for 18 months uh, into my into my uh, this office. We were able to dismiss, we were able to be dismissed from that lawsuit, uh, uh, and that cost. I mean, that it's actually saving the tax dollars of Cook County taxpayers uh, a lot of money. Because, you know, that segment was a very expensive lawsuit uh, that was done for many, many years here against the city, the state, and the county. So I'm glad to say that we got this in the first 18 months of my of this administration. We were mm-hmm. able to hire over 500-plus new employees in this office to address the, you know, the attrition the because people are, are, you know, people that have been in this office 20 and 30 years have retired. And, of course, because of the fact that we had a, a lot of vacancies due to COVID and everything, we're able to, we're, we're getting so staffed up. It's been really, really rewarding to see so many people come to this office looking for jobs and we're able to provide and show between so many different areas. Another area, too, that I'm very proud of is the domestic violence center that we opened up over in Markham. Markham, the Markham area in the Southland, there was no uh, uh, a domestic violence center, and we were able to uh, to locate a area in the Markham courthouse in the in the concourse level, and we're able to open up a safe place for our our victims to go in and fill up their their orders of protection or whatever services they needed without feeling you know in this open area where you know even the perpetrators were walking around. I wanted a safe space for those victims and their children. The children have their own little space. We provide food. Uh, uh, we provide food for them if they want. They books. TV and whatever they need there to keep them entertained while parents are filling out their, you know, their paperwork for order of protection or whatever they may need from our office. Those are a few of the things that I can tell you right off at the top of my head that I'm very, very proud of. But again, it's, you know, it's, it's been a very challenging an office that had 
a lot, a lot of, you know, uh, of issues of technology right now that we are very proud of because we're really working. And we got, we finally got all areas of law online. Um, you can see any case in any division uh, online. Uh, our, our website also, uh, we did a big, big, we took the, the website down. We rebooted this, 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 uh, this website with all kind of new and innovative software. Uh, we've won several awards for the best redesigned website because we feel that people need to be able to navigate through our system as, you know, as, 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 as smoothly as possible because people are afraid of technology, even myself. But again, I, I can tell you that we've been improving on all aspects. Given the time, the little bit of time we've been here, we've been really, really busy trying to bring this office up to the 21st century. I thought something uh, you did was very interesting. Um, anytime anybody is in elected office or running for elected office, you know, there are always uh, various organizations that assess and weigh in and investigate. And um, the Chicago Tribune published an article where they questioned the practice of employees who work for you donating to your campaign. And according to numbers that they got, um, as many as nearly half of the people who donated to you then later got pay raises or promotions. Uh, they didn't come right out and, and accuse you of wrongdoing or illegality. But the implication <clears throat> was was clear that it was... Um, uh, close to a kind of a pay to play kind of a of an attitude and you did something that i think more people who are challenged should do you wrote your own op-ed after the chicago tribune decided to endorse your opponent and you talked about in that op-ed why you were disappointed with, A, the fact that they didn't give you the endorsement and what you felt that they overlooked. Um, give our listeners a sense of what you wrote to, and was and it was published in the Chicago Tribune, I think, last week. Yes, it was. I think it was very important for me to, you know, if we're going to do real honest journalism here, let's be honest and let's be open about all the candidates and and the past. As you know, you know, there, one thing about uh, about is in the last three years, I've always had two major fundraisers. I, I invite people to go. I don't obligate anyone. I do not. I do not expect the, the implications that in the pay to play, especially when it comes to promotion that I was very offended by that, because, first of all, in, in, in this office, the employees here, the assessments that I make on employees, again, it is about the people that are here, the people that I've been able to promote from within because of the hard work that they are doing, the, the, the qualifications that many of them have been looked over, have been looked over in all the years. Many of the clerks that were here and managers had not received a promotion or a raise in pay or anything in over 20 years. I can tell you that during that time that we were doing the, 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 the county of Cook did assessments on all employees and making sure that if an, if an, administrative, if an administrative assistant in my office gets paid, say, uh, $30,000, right, and an administrative office in another office of another entity gets paid $50,000 for the same job, one of the things that the county, or the big county did was 
to bring everybody at the same level where they should be at. So those promotions that were that you saw in there that went in there were promotions that were granted based on the fact of the evaluation the county was doing in a lot of these positions. And also in that in that I've also found people from within here that again have been that should have been promoted a long time ago but never had an opportunity. So during that time to actually say that it was for a contribution. I'm really offended by that because in the 40 years I have been a public servant, I have never, ever been questioned. And I would never, ever give someone something in exchange. I've been around for 40 years. I know the rules. I know the ethics rules. However, if people want to come to a birthday party or want to come to an event of mine, I don't obligate anyone, anyone, especially the work for me. However, if they want, I have 1,400 employees. And if they're talking about 42 employees, that, that gave me uh, a sum for my birthday. Uh, again, it was an open invitation to everyone. They, don't, they do not have to pay. They were not obligated to pay. That's never been my style, and that I will continue to that. However, when you look at, at her side, at what she's done, you know, uh, my opponent, when you look at her dollars and her being paid, uh, uh, when you talk about being the water reclamation president and you get – uh, donations from people doing business with the water reclamation, that's pay to play. When you have a seat that you lost and then your parents, uh, when she got appointed, that governor received a donation from her parents for 150000 That's pay to play. That to me is, again, so don't, and, 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 and the journalist that wrote the article never gave me an opportunity to explain that that money that they were talking about, the $42,000, there was as a period of three years as opposed to what she's been doing in a pay-to-play. And just for further information, anybody can look this up, is that there was a lawsuit that was filed against one of those companies by our attorney general who ended up, that company was, uh, was charged with, with uh, doing terms of business as a minority, and, and, and it was proven that that person, uh, that company, should not have had a lawsuit to the, uh, and was, had to pay $2 million dollars to the um, to the to the to the state because of the lawsuit and that same that same company got a ten million dollar contract with the water rest. Again, let's let's talk about let's go over on that side and let's talk about that. I want to talk about the work that we've done and why I want to stay in this job. You know, to continue to do the work and and bring a transparency to this office, especially the court system that still needs a lot of work. And we still are still working currently with all of our stakeholders to ensure that our judicial system is as easy to navigate and, and that we're working with our judges to make sure that they're getting everything they need for their job, for, for what they do with their, with their cases. What, um, what would you say is the reason that um, the Chicago Tribune endorsed your opponent and what... I guess I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is, um, you know, we all know that uh, Dorothy Brown didn't exactly leave things uh, quite as one would have hoped. Um, and you had a lot of work to do. And, you know, by your own admission, um, you know, your opponent has also uh, taken uh, campaign donations from people that she might have been in, involved with. Why did the Tribune, what was the, what were the factors, do you think, that led the Tribune to pick her rather than you? Well, you know what, I, I, I when I say I was disappointed because when they endorsed me four years ago, 
they gave me a list of things that that office needed to be done. You know, they needed they needed and that we needed to really focus on. And I can tell you, I focus on all those because I even told them there. These are the things that I worked on. These are the things that we have been able to bring this office to the 21st century in so many aspects. Now, do they expect me to turn the office around completely? There's a lot of work, especially when it comes to technology. Little by little, we had to make sure that we brought all the different uh, areas of law online. We had to make sure that we are that we have a website that is easy for us, for people to maneuver and navigate, because it is very, very challenging. Those are the things that I can, I can tell you that, that we worked on and that the tribunal even admits, yes, you have been doing this great, you know, you've been doing this work and you, and you did accomplish a lot of that. But however, if they're not, if they're not supporting me because, if they're not supporting me because of the contributions, well, you know what? It wasn't fair that they were not, they did not give her lack of integrity also be a factor and, and go ahead and support her knowing the things that what I feel are much more egregious as opposed to what she's done as, 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 a, as a former president and the fact of the money she's taking in and the fact that she was appointed to a seat that her parents paid for. Again, for them not to look at that and just look at this, this minor thing for me that was not about, about giving people promotions for donations, I, like I said, insulted by that because in the 40 years, I've never had anything of that nature ever questioned any donations that I've ever received. And out there, let me just say this, everyone that works for city government, state, local, whatever, we are all about making sure that we're helping the people that we that we believe in. You know what? And people believe in me. I've been around for 40 years. And that's why, you know what? I'm not going to be bothered with that as much as I am bothered with the fact that People seem to not endorse people for the work that they're doing. Look at the turnaround that we have had in this office. Look at the comments being made by so many attorneys and judges out there on how much, much, much better this office is running right now. How much better there is a, 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 a website that is much more easy to understand, that the odyssey is much more easy, that we are training and training and training our attorneys, our judges, and every to all the new technology. That's what we should be talking about, about the positive effects that we have had in the people in this office in transforming this office into a much more uh, technologically, you know, uh, uh, office that it didn't have in the past. And it was, we digitized over 70 million cases. Like I said, we have been working from day one and transforming this office. It should be about the work that's been done in this office. We are talking to Iris Martinez, who's the clerk of the circuit court. Court of Cook County. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by our Iris Martinez, who is working very hard to retain her seat as a Cook County circuit clerk. Um, Iris, when you won this position the last time, uh, you didn't have a lot of uh, support from the party. And you don't really have a huge amount of support from the party this time around, which, you know, maybe when you were trying to get the position initially might have been something that could be justified. Now you're the incumbent and most incumbents automatically get that kind of uh, party support. What is uh, what is it with the Democratic Party and, and you that, that that just doesn't seem to mix? Well, I think, John, for, for service, I don't go with the flow. I'm not beholden to a party uh, that right now I feel is very, very exclusive. Inclusive. It's, not in, it's not inclusive. And I say this because 
four years ago when I ran, I was a city senator. At that time, the nod was given to a white, you know, to a, to a, a, a Caucasian individual with money, you know, and, and again, a deal was cut behind the scenes, and, and, um, and uh, Mr. Carbonardi was the, uh, the endorsed candidate over myself uh, uh, and uh, the other, uh, Mr. Boykin and Mr. Meister. And, and again, this time around, once again, and, I, and the reason why I stayed in that race, first of all, city senator, I, wanted, I was in the middle of my term. I wanted to see if, you know, if I was able to get myself elected so I can start making the decisions in that office, which we did. And let me just say to you, John, that after that happened, of course, I embraced a party. I'm a very, I'm a very blue Democrat. I'm the Hispanic caucus chair for the, I'm the DNC. Uh, I've, been that, I've been there for almost over 10 years doing that work. I've been in a national uh, a DNC member for over 30 years now. So again, when you talk about a true Democrat, that's me. But I do not go, and I think the party was upset with me because I still decided to run, even though I was not the endorsed candidate. And the reason why I did this back then was because there was no brown person, a Hispanic, at the top of the ticket to run to motivate our people to come out to vote and be part of the process. They did it to us again. This time, it was with an oil tycoon of an oil rich uh, uh, heiress to uh, millions and millions of the Seco oil money. And again, she got the nod because of the money. And again, I did not. And their excuse was that you ran against the party. Well, I can name you a few members right now that are endorsed by the party that the last time ran against the party and the party's candidates. But I'm being treated differently. I'm being treated differently. And again, I will not make excuses. I will not apologize for a race, well, I am the incumbent. I'm the only brown person, the only Hispanic constitutional officer in the county, and I was not given that nod. So again, I find the Democratic Party did not look at the fact that the Latinos not not need to apply because this ticket, this 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 election of ticket is a black and white ticket. There is no Latino at the top of the ticket. And again, we the Latinos should be offended by this. Again, this and the fact that I was the only brown person at the top of the ticket elected, and they still disregarded me because I ran against the party. However, they have gone ahead and given the nod to several other people that right now are, have been endorsed by them who ran against the party the last time. Again, you know, it's a dictatorship. It's if you don't kiss the ring, you don't get the, you don't get the nod. And okay, and I'm okay with that. I want I beat the party last time with the help of the, especially with the support of the people of Kutani. And I really feel with the work that we have done and the positive campaign that we're running, not, the, not a campaign full of lies and buying and opening up a checkbook and buying every endorsement out there possible because of the fact that I just don't go to the and I'll be holding to the party. That's the problem, John, and I'm okay with it. I feel good about that. <laughs> you have uh, gotten the endorsement of Congresswoman Robin Kelly, what um, tell me about your relationship with her and, and why she chose to endorse you? Robin and I come back, we'll go back together for my first dates in General Assembly. We came into the General Assembly together, her to the House and me to the House and me to the Senate. So and we from that day that we connected as freshmen, we were friends ever since we became friends. And, you know, she's become like a sister to me. We spend time together. We talk about a lot of things. And she's always been in my in my corner from day one when I was a state senator. And then when she went to the treasurer's office, when she went on to Congress, I've always been a very, very strong supporter because I really believe in Robin. And she feels the same way about me. And I uh, believe you've also been endorsed by some of the unions representing uh, firefighters, uh, construction workers, 
um, some state lawmakers and uh, Chicago Alder people. Um, talk about some of those endorsements, if you would. Those endorsements, you know, again, it's the the approachable, you know, the the, the how approachable I am. I have all my a lot of my aldermen. I've I've been very respectful as an elected woman that I've been for over twenty or for twenty years as a state senator and before when I wrote for the city. You, you make so many uh, connections. You meet so many people on the way. And I think my time in the state senate, I was able to make so many good friends with these individuals that are supporting me today. They believe in me. They believe in the work that I've done. They believe in the integrity that I've always come forward, the openness and the down to earth that I've always been to people. I'm just, I'm elected by the people. So I have to, you know, work for the people. And that's always been my motto. I am about good government. I'm about open and honesty. And it just really is sad. I'm, when you see the politics today, of the environment, the environment that we're in, you know what? Many of the uh, people that share my view are some of those and, and the people that are supporting me because we are all trying to work to make the city, the state, the county a better place for everyone here. So I really believe that those folks that you see that are listed are people that believe that we all believe in helping and helping our constituents. Um, I'm I'm. Would it, I'm surprised that um, that you've gotten it, it's such a wide ranging. I mean, like you've got unions, you've got state lawmakers, you've got older people, you've got a congresswoman endorsing you. And yet not the party. The, the party is not behind you. Now, I know a couple of years, um, a, a, a couple a year or two ago, you did back some candidates that were not party endorsed. Do you think that's part of what this is? That could be. That could be it. That can be it. You know, that could be made possible that it happened. But the fact then the party didn't endorse me. I think as a committee woman that I am, I'm a committee woman in the 33rd Ward, I have the right to pick and choose people that I can relate to, people that I can work with. And that, again, and sometimes uh, the underdogs, there's so many great people that the, that the party is going to want to look at, have never considered. And that's okay. You know what I mean? But as a person that is out there, has been out there 40 years, that have known and met people and have met so many great women, there's a lot of people that I would love to see them at the forefront, but they're never given an opportunity. The underdogs are never given an opportunity by the party. And, again, I'm about, you know, trying to help people that are the underdogs and the people that do want to make a difference, that I feel have so much to offer, and maybe that's the reason. And if that's the reason, again, we as committee people, we as electors, should be able to support the people that we feel, not the people that the party feels are the right people. Because you know what? I'm sorry, but there's been, uh, you know, some uh, endorsements in the past of individuals that have not turned out to be, you know, uh, the best of the But again, it's okay. You know what? I, I, I respect the process. I go for the, but do I, do I really feel that they're, do, that they're doing the right thing by being inclusive? Yes, I don't feel that they're not being inclusive. I think they're being, you know, if, if anything, they have not, they have ignored the Latino community, and that's where I feel very strong about. Do you have a campaign website that people can go to to find out more about you? Yeah, www.irisforclerk is there, uh, our website. Uh, you know, it is a website that I can tell you uh, uh, will have a lot of, of, of all the information that we can possibly have there uh, uh, as far as with the campaign, what we're doing, what we, the stance that we take on a, on a lot of issues. So I would love people to actually go to my website. And uh, it's, it's, uh, and it's, I'm going to give it to you one second. Just to make sure I have the right one here. And it's irisforclerk.com. 
and uh, and also the 33rd Ward website that also I'm running for re-election of my 33rd Ward, a committee committee person. Um, Iris, we only have about a, a minute left. What is the one main thought that you want our listeners to take away? Give them the one main reason why they should vote for you. I would say this. If you are happy with what we have done so far with the clerk's office and the, all the advances that we have made, all the work that we have done from, from an expungement center that we opened up to domestic violence that we've opened up to a call center, to a, a post-litigant office that we open up. This is about the people that we are servicing. We are doing, you, I am doing the mandate of the Cook County residents from the last uh, three years, the mandate and, the, and, and voting for me. I have completed so much of that work, but I know that I still have so much to do. And I ask people out there to punch 91 and to give me an opportunity to continue the good work and the good work that not that I'm doing, but the good work of this office, together with all the, the, the wonderful, dedicated clerks in this office, making a difference in this office, the office of the clerks of the court. Iris Martinez, uh, current clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County, um, on the ballot to be reelected as the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Iris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me uh, on your show. I really do appreciate it. It is uh, it is a pleasure, and we are going to try to talk to a lot of the people. That you, um, in case, um, even if you um, don't have a Cook County ballot, we are going to try to talk to a lot of the people who are on ballots in a lot of different places. If there is a candidate that you'd really like to hear from, uh, you'd like me to interview, let me know. Please, you can let me know. You can use our... Uh, call in line to shoot me a text, 773-763-9278. We are going to take a break for news, and we are going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is um, one of our regularly scheduled Union Strong segments. Uh, today, we welcome Dan Leggy, Lecky, excuse me, Dan Lecky, uh, from Megan Financial. I don't know. I, my tongue just stuck to the roof of my mouth. I think I need a drink of water. Dan, I apologize for uh, massacring your name there for a minute. How are you oh, today, no, other, other than that? I'm wonderful, and I've heard a lot worse. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me back on. <laughs> uh, well, it's always great to talk to somebody from Megan Financial. Because, well, first of all, I think some people who haven't heard our segments before get very confused. Wait a minute. She said this was union strong, um, but she's talking to somebody from a financial company. Well, yeah, they uh, work hand in hand with a lot of the unions, especially the trade unions. And Dan, just give us an overview of everything that Megan does in working with the unions. Sure. So. Yeah, we are, in fact, all financial advisors by trade. So, you know, by definition, we help people manage their money before, during, and through retirement. But we've uh, we've created such a unique niche here at Megan where we primarily only work with, with unions and, like you said, the majority labor unions. So what we do is we educate members on their pension benefits. And every union, you know, is going to have a pension, but the benefits are going to differ between the unions. And we sit with the members, usually in a um, 
seminar presentation type setting, and we'll go through all the basics of their pensions, how they work, and everything that they need to know. After those seminars, we'll schedule one-on-one appointments with the members to help them go over their individual pension numbers and what retirement is going to look like for them. So it becomes all about education, and our number one goal is helping the member get retired and making sure they understand all the benefits that they have available to them, and they choose the ones that make sense for their retirement situation and their family. Dan, I know that a big part of planning for retirement is trying to figure out how much money you're going to need in retirement. What questions do we need to be asking ourselves to try to figure out what that number is? So that is, I think, the hardest question that anybody has to answer in regards to retirement. Is yeah. How much do I need? And I really think... You know, you can do budgets and and you can do all the spreadsheets and and all the software and all the planning, but I honestly feel if you have a feel for where your money is going each month, you know how much is coming in, and if you know what's going out and where it's going and you have control of that, you're going to be able to know when you can retire. We can run the pension numbers for any age. And when those numbers match up to what you're spending or what you think that you're going to be spending in retirement, or perhaps the pension and your Social Security don't quite equal what you need, do you have a nest egg, um, a 401k or a retirement account that you can tap into to supplement that income? So for me, the, the, the biggest thing is knowing what are you spending your money on? You know, where can you cut back if you have to, if your income is going to decrease, which most of ours does in retirement? Well, yeah, don't, um, I mean, do you, do you ask people, like, do you plan to stay in your home? Are you thinking about, you know, relocating <clears throat> to maybe a warm weather state? Um, you know, once you retire, do you need two cars or maybe can you get by with one car? I mean, it seems to me there's so many things to think about. There really is. And, you know, I think union members in general, and I know I'm painting with a very broad brush, but I think they do a fantastic job of living within their means. And when you have that gap between income coming in and money going out and you're spending less than what you're making, it makes retirement so much easier. And I see a lot of members with their homes paid off or their mortgages very close to being paid off and very little debt. So paying attention to to those things before retirement and planning ahead of time makes a big difference. You know, I have a lot of people, they want to buy a lake house or they want to winter in Florida. And Joan, correct me if I'm wrong, right before I came on, there was a weather forecast, 72 tomorrow, but snow on Wednesday, is that? I know, it's the end of the world, Dan. It's the apocalypse. You know what? I want to go to Florida. (laughs) And um, there's also, I read this morning, I haven't seen it since, but this morning in Block Club Chicago, they said, oh, and by the way, there's a slim possibility of a tornado. Oh, oh my gosh. It's it's wild. It's absolutely wild. But, 
But yeah, people do look for that stability or, or somewhere else. And it's all about looking at the numbers. We can do estimates of what, you know, estimating income is pretty easy with pensions and Social Security, but estimating investments can become a little more tricky. So we tend to err on the side of, of caution and we'll put a lower estimate return on what your retirement or nest egg accounts are doing. And we can kind of predict what's that, what is that going to look like going forward? So if you have someone who has a retirement account and they're making six or 7% on average per year, well, they can probably take out three or 4% and not completely drain their account and kind of maintain that balance and keep up with, you know, normal inflation, which we haven't seen in a couple of years, but slowly but surely it is coming down. Wow. There's, are there any books that you advise people to read? Is there any, anything that um, we should, we need to educate ourselves on or do you, or can we get avoid all that because you've done it for us? You know, if you if you love to read, there's a bunch of them out there. And, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with Dave Ramsey, but but I'm a disciple, and you know, trying to avoid debt at all costs, and you know, paying cash for things. And if you don't have the money in the bank account or on the debit card, you know, don't charge it. You can't afford to uh, afford to purchase it, and that that helps a lot of people, but. You know, there are are tons of resources and books out there, but we do pride ourselves on being able to counsel each person individually Mm -hmm. and help them come up with a plan that makes the most sense for them and their family. Some people love it. Some people don't want to bother with it. You know, I have a lot of union members tell me, you know, I don't understand what you do and I don't want to understand what you do. (laughs) And. And I tell them, you would not want me on the job with you because I am the least handy person in the world, but I understand the numbers and I understand how they work and, and what they look like. Yeah, I think I would be end up being one of those people. Uh, Dan, we, we need to take a break. I'm talking with Dan Leckie, an investment executive at Megan Financial. This is our sponsored Union Strong segment. We will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our sponsored Union Strong segment. I'm joined by Dan Leckie, who's an investment executive at Megan Financial. Um, you said um, that you work with the trade unions, and we know that. Are there any unions other than the trade unions that Megan works with, Dan? Absolutely. We have a strong presence now with a lot of the fire department unions, Chicago Fire Department, and now branching into the suburbs. We can really work with any union. You know, we understand how pensions work and most of the nuances that can go into an individual pension. You have a, a pension, right, Joan? Sa- yeah, SAG uh-huh, SAG-AFTRA pension. Which I also don't really understand all that well, but unfortunately, I can't ask you those questions because we kind of go it alone. (laughs) Well, and and that's fair enough, but as long as somebody has a statement, we can sit down and look at, you know, look at that. We can look up online the rules of the pensions usually and 
and see what they are. The pensions have so many nuances when it comes to how to leave a spousal benefit. So I think the majority of our union members are married, and if they want to leave a spousal benefit, they usually take a a reduction in their pension in order to do so. Mm -hmm. And so we can help them calculate those reductions. And a lot of the unions, the pensions offer, you know, three or four different choices on the spousal benefits and trying to figure out which ones make the most sense. How big of a reduction to take? Does the benefit have a pop-up where if my spouse passes first, I go back to my original amount? So there's so many nuances that go into the, the individual pensions. We're pretty good at, at figuring out ones that we may not be used to working with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. How often, Dan, when you've got all this stuff set up, like your 401ks, uh, your life insurance, uh, stuff like that, how often do you think people need to revisit this? I mean... Um, you know, a, a life insurance policy. I just um, got an, a notice of a life insurance policy I have, and, and I, it just occurred to me. I was like, you know what? I don't really remember how I set up the beneficiary. And um, it when I when I got the information, it turns out that the, everything that I had set up was completely outdated. How often should somebody pay attention to that? We recommend, you know, if you don't know if you've updated your beneficiaries, we'll do it just to be safe and get it the way that that they should be. You know, I think that you should be looking at things annually. You know, some people look at the market every day and they watch their accounts and they're completely on top of um, their estate plan. And they have a will, they have a trust, and they have all that set up the way that it needs to be. I I think sometimes meeting with a a financial advisor is like going to a dentist for people. It's something that they know that they need to do, but, you know, they avoid it. And I think when you start looking at estate plans and and planning for the future, people avoid that more. You know, they know that they need a will or a trust, and it's important to have, but it's one of those things I think that, that always gets pushed to the side. And if you have... You know, a will or a trust, especially a trust where you can have the trust be the beneficiary on multiple accounts that you may have, it's going to make things a lot easier and you won't have to pay attention to them as much because it's all encompassed in in one document, one legal entity. Does that make sense? Did I get that that one right? Yeah, that does. And as long as we're talking about what, what you should do when, when should you start planning for retirement? So that is, that's the million-dollar question. I always say plan earlier than later because if you plan sooner, you're able to adapt and make changes. If you have certain goals that you want to accomplish in retirement or you do want to buy a place in Florida, you can quantify that, and you can work that into a plan and see what the numbers look like. Now, Some people, they don't want to plan ahead. The numbers are going to be what the numbers are going to be. So this is what's coming in. You know, I'm not going to spend more than that going out, and I'm just going to have to make it work versus, you know, looking at it ahead of time. And everyone's got to do what's right by them. For union members retiring and planning for retirement, 
the, the one thing that you want to look at is health insurance. What are my options? Every union is going to have a different plan when it comes to health insurance and retirement. Some of them, you know, don't offer it and you have to work to 65 and then do the Medicare way. Some of them, you can retire at 62 and keep your insurance. A lot of them will have HRAs or accounts that they can use to pay premiums until they reach age 65. So, for union members, it's really looking at what your union offers in regards to that. And if you're not going to take their insurance plan, can you afford to pay the premiums on your own? Where where are you going to look at, you know, to get the insurance? And sometimes mm-hmm. a spouse can carry you on their plan or, uh, you know, they just buy it independently. But for union ma- members, preparing and, and looking at that ahead of time and knowing what's in front of you, I think makes retiring a lot easier. Yeah. Well, sure. And at what age do union members retire? Does it vary for different unions? It does. It does. Um, every union is a little different. You know, 60 to 62 for several unions tends to be uh, the sweet spot, like I said, some of them are going to be 65. Some of the unions offer retirement um, options as early as age 55. So every union, uh, again, is going to have those different rules and different kind of idiosyncrasies within their pensions. And I think that's kind of important to sit down and, and plan ahead and kind of how we all, we, we steer it back to education. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to educate you on exactly what your union benefits are. And you're going to have that knowledge and you're going to know what's right for you to do. You know, do you want to sit down and, and look at how things are at age 50? You know, do you want to wait till you're 57 and you have five years left? As long as they have that information and they understand what's available to them and how it's going to work, I think it makes the individual process a lot easier for someone. Kind of like you just said is, you know, you don't completely understand your own pension, but uh, you, you said you're on your own with it. You know, understanding it and, and knowing what's available to you really alleviates a lot of the stress when it comes to retiring and wondering, you know, am I going to make it? Do I have enough money? Mm-hmm. That pension is such a unique benefit. You know, I, I, I don't have the exact, per, I don't know what the new uh, percentages are, but it's usually like 5 to 7% of Americans have pensions. It is such a game changer when it comes to retirement. For example, myself, I have to wait to take Social Security. It is my only source of income in retirement, so I need to try and maximize that. But for union members, someone like yourself or a labor union or, you know, a firefighter or a Chicago police officer, Social Security is going to become supplemental to the pension. They're going to have multiple sources of guaranteed income for the rest of their life. And that's a giant game changer on when you can retire and knowing you have that guaranteed income for the rest of your life. That's huge. You know, somebody like me, I have to rely on my retirement accounts, my 401ks and saving away my money. Whereas 
union members do that, but they have this income that's coming in that I, I almost think is, is a bigger deal than the 401k. Well, Dan, you're just going to have to get your life partner in one of these unions, you know? <laughs> so somebody <laughs> well, has access to a, this kind of money coming in. Um, well, I, I will give you my wife's number, and, and I'm going to have you talk to her. Okay, well, you know there's a big push for women in trades, women in trades. Um, oh, she's going to kill me. <laughs> um, you know, I'm always reading about how uh, pension plans are, you know, like, oh, you know, this company, they're, you know, major stockholder are, you know, four different pension plans. And and obviously, if um, if a, a pension, if you're managing a pension, you don't want the money to just like sit there in a savings account. You want to try to grow the money. Uh, so you invest it. But does that mean that when the stock market is volatile, it'll have an effect on union benefits? So it's a great question. And in one aspect, it absolutely can. So when it comes to a union pension, and the labor unions are are majority private, so they're private pensions. The stock market is not going to have a massive effect on the money that is in the pool for the pensions themselves, the monthly payments and retirement. But most of the unions do have that retirement piece. Some call it an annuity. Um, Technically, legally, I think it's a 401A is the classification, which is just a a stepbrother of a 401K. Now, most members are going to have a choice of where to invest that money, and that's where the market can come into play. And members need to understand what their risk tolerance is and you know, where they feel comfortable investing their money. You know, we've had a lot of ups and downs, you know, the last couple of years, 2022, the S&P was down 20%. And, you know, people people panicked that year. It was, it wasn't an awful percentage drop. Obviously, nobody wants the market to go down, but that's a manageable number. And then last year, the S&P was up, I believe, 27%. So you make it right back, but making sure you're in the right spot when that roller coaster ride starts is going to mm-hmm. make it a lot easier to digest when you have those bumps in the market. And if somebody belongs to a union, should they also do a 401k or an IRA? So I, the question I always ask is, can you, can you ever have too much money? <laughs> and, and, and to me, oh, I think the well, answer is no, case. right? Everybody <laughs> wants more. So absolutely. Uh, a 401k, if you're in a union, you're probably not going to be able to, to do because they have plans built in. But you can absolutely, if the numbers look right, you can do a Roth IRA. You can have an additional IRA. Uh, you can open brokerage accounts. You know, you definitely have other options. And again, it circles back to education and planning. I mean, if you have an idea of where you're going to be and you don't think that's enough, then that's kind of your cue to what can I do alternatively to what's being provided for me with with the union and my job. Uh, what's the difference between a Roth IRA and an IRA? Okay, 
I'm going to try and answer this as simply as possible. Use little words, so, Dan. Yeah. Use only little words. <laughs> That's the only ones I know. <laughs> um, okay. So a regular IRA or a 401k for that matter, that money is going in tax deferred. So you don't pay taxes on that money. It goes into your retirement account. It grows tax deferred. You don't pay taxes on anything as the money is earning and reinvesting into itself in the account. In an IRA or a 401k, when you take money out, you pay taxes at your regular income rate. So if you take out $10,000 in your uh, tax rate's 22%, you're going to pay 22% taxes on the 10000 If you take out 200000 you could move yourself into a different tax bracket. Mm-hmm. That's I where the, the Roth becomes a, a really nice, attractive alternative is a Roth is after-tax money. So money you already have in your checking Free or money. savings account. Yeah. <laughs> Available money, right? So that goes into a Roth. It goes tax, gross tax deferred, and then when it comes out, it's tax free. They'll never pay taxes on that money again. Um, a lot I of see. retirement plans, four hundred one k's, are offering a Roth version, and I think they're they're wonderful. But for a Roth to come out, you know, tax free at the end. You pay it up front, and then you don't have to worry about it later. It's a huge advantage. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us and explaining all this. It's really a valuable conversation. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Joan. I appreciate it, as always. And I promise next time we'll get your Ron back. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dan Leckie is with Megan Financial. This is our Union Strong sponsored segment. We're going to take a break and we're going to talk about some uh, new uh, clean water uh, regulations when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Michael Hawthorne is here. He is the Chicago Tribune environmental reporter. And I reached out to Michael a while ago because I was like, oh, my God, new clean water stuff coming down uh, from the White House. Kamala Harris making a big speech about it. And Michael was like, calm down, Joan. Calm down. This isn't groundbreaking. They're just talking about something that they've been doing for a while. And I was like, oh, okay. well, I'd still like to talk to you about it. So Michael graciously agreed to join me and settle me down because apparently this had already previously been announced. So we we, was the White House, Michael, just kind of reminding us that this was out there and going on or or what? I got so excited. (laughs) This is the advantage of incumbency. Um, you know, the, the Congress and, and President Biden worked on these big infrastructure bills. The one that the, they like to call BIL, you know, they love their acronyms in Washington, bipartisan mm-hmm. infrastructure bill, right, or le- legislation. And it earmarked something like, what was it, uh, $50 billion for our water infrastructure, which is aging and has a lot of problems that we can talk about um, in you know the coming minutes. Um, the thing of it is, is that you know the fifty billion dollars doesn't go out in one year; it goes out over years. And so every time it's time for another round of money to go out, you know, you're the president, you're the 
you know, federal agency, in this case, the Environmental Protection Agency, you get to crow about it. You get to brag about it. You get to remind people or tell people for the first time, if they're not paying attention, where the money is going. And so that press release that you saw and got you all so excited, that's what it was. And so it's it, really what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a signpost. It's a reminder that, hey, you know, your elected representatives, your president did this big deal and here's where the money's going. And so, mm-hmm. in, you know, it, for among other things, you know, um, there's loan funding, uh, low interest loan funding to communities like Chicago, which is tapping into this extra money on the tune of something like 300 plus million dollars to begin replacing the toxic lead service lines that connect homes throughout the city to the public water supply. We've talked about that quite a bit. So, so you know, there, it's still incumbent. It still uh, depends on our local governments, not just Chicago, but all around the country to then spend that money wisely and get the job done in a timely fashion. And we'll see if that actually happens. But, but the money's coming out the door and, and, you know, it's for a bunch of different things. It's not just the lead pipes, which are a big deal as we've talked about before, but it's also just we have crumbling what they call infrastructure. You know, the the pipes, the water pipes are, you know, in some cases in a lot of cities, including Chicago, they're a century old and they're leaky. And that means we waste water and there are, you know, occasional boil advisories, right? Because there's a water leak and then bacteria can get into the water supply. And then, and then we have those nasty forever chemicals, PFAS chemicals, that are everywhere. Every time they look for these chemicals, including in Chicago and many, many suburban communities, they're finding these chemicals that are toxic at very, very extremely low levels. And while some communities, including some in the suburban Chicago, have sued the manufacturers of these forever chemicals, and they won a big settlement with 3M from Minnesota and DuPont and in Delaware, you know, that's going to eventually provide a lot of money for clean water in many communities across the country. The Biden administration also, through this big infrastructure bill, provided money to start getting clean water, starting to get PFAS, these forever chemicals, out of drinking water. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell what got you excited last week. And, you know, it's it's we're really starting to scratch the surface on these longstanding problems that have been pretty well known. But for a bunch of different reasons, our policymakers, our elected officials weren't addressing in a really concerted effort until recently. Just to be clear. Uh, clear. PFAS are not the same thing as as nano and microplastics. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's a completely different thing. That's not really addressed in any of this stuff. Um, that's yeah. They're gonna. They're still working on that because the science is still uh, relatively new on that. So on the PFAS um, or the plastics or all on of it? the plastics. No, mm. in terms of the plastics, in terms of the harm it could cause us. You know, they have either they're they're fearful of of it causing harm. It's there. They know that it's in our water. It's in our beer. You know, it's it's in a lot of things. But they they haven't quite figured out yet, like what it is doing to us. 
as opposed to those forever chemicals, the PFAS chemicals. We know that some of them, the most widely studied versions of that chemistry, can cause cancer at very low levels over a long time of exposure. So if you're well, drinking the key, contaminated water that... every day, but mm-hmm. if you're contaminated, you're drinking contaminated you know, un- unknowingly, you know, drinking contaminated water every day, it's potentially going to increase your risk for a bunch of health problems, including certain kinds of cancer, uh, uh, high blood pressure when you're pregnant, uh, you know, uh, uh, some some types of uh, developmental effects in children, a bunch of different things. You know, there's 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 increasing evidence that it is another trigger for breast cancer. So so working on getting those chemicals out of our water supply, including more I guess the 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 the, uh, the toxic substances that we're more familiar with, like lead, uh, you know, it's going to go a long way towards hopefully restoring confidence in our public water supplies. I know that you uh, follow all of these environmental concerns. On the, I'm I'm starting to think that getting them out of the environment is a Herculean task. Um, how about approaching the problem from the other end? I know that there is something called chelation therapy that was designed to to pull lead out of the body. Um, because you're looking at these problems, and we don't even know um, how much of a problem we have or exactly what the problems cause, what about technology to just... I don't know. Get this stuff out of our bodies. Is anybody approaching the problem yeah, from that way? You know, that, that, that sometimes is like a, a let, let's put it this way. The chelation, which you mentioned before, that's that's really only used when when children have really high levels of lead because it's it's, it's a really like uh, debilitating process where they're like putting chemicals into your body to get the lead out of the blood of a, of a child. And it's painful and it's, you know, you don't want to go through that. And in the, in the science, the public health community has basically said at the lower levels that can still cause harm, the chelation is not worth, it, it's not mm-hmm. going to do the job. So, so right now we don't, you know, that's something that we don't, what, what we have to really be doing is, eliminating our exposure. So, you know, there's a common term in the public health community, you know, turn off the tap. So, you know, these these forever chemicals uh, that were in Teflon and Scotchgard and the replacement versions of them, there's something like on the order of 9,000 plus of these chemicals. And the government has continued uh, approving new versions of them that that independent scientists just don't know about. A lot about, but of the ones that have been studied that were billed as being safer than the original formulas, well, you know, uh, DuPont, 3M, their own studies, their own studies show that they're just as dangerous, if not more so, than the chemicals that they were designed to replace. And so, you know, companies like 3M now, they, they, they pioneered these forever chemicals after World War II. They've announced, last year they announced that uh, starting in 2025, they're going to stop making this chemistry altogether. Now, the, the problem is, you know, we're stuck. 
with these with these chemicals that don't break down very easily in the environment, build up in our bodies, build up in the environment as well, and they can actually change. Like they can they can if they degrade, they degrade into other forms that are potentially more harmful to us and to uh, the environment. So you know, but if we stop making them, it's kind of like you know when we stopped adding lead to gasoline in the 80s, you know, the level of lead in children went down significantly. I mean, it's a huge, that that was a huge public health success story. Now, we still have this problem with lead in water because of the old lead pipes. We still have a problem in a lot of older communities like Chicago with a lot of old housing with the dust from lead paint. So there are pockets of problems with lead, for example. And, you know, a few years ago, I wrote about how the rate of lead, childhood lead poisoning in poor, predominantly black neighborhoods of Chicago actually had begun to increase again after many years of decline. And that was in part because people said, hey, we've solved the problem, right? We got lead out of gasoline. We banned lead in paint, a bunch of other things. It, it, but But it didn't address, you know, disadvantaged communities, not just in Chicago, but around the country where people are living in, you know, in some cases, subsidized housing that has lead paint and lead paint dust. And, and you know, kids are living there and they can still get poisoned. So the, 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 the bottom line is any of these harmful substances, the best thing is to just stop putting them out in the environment in the first place. Um, you know, we first got an indication that some of the ingredients or in Roundup were um, carcinogenic because like gardeners and landscapers who really use this stuff all the time were getting ill. For some of these uh, PFAS and things like that, um, do we see the workers in the plants where these things, uh, these substances and these uh, Scotch guard and that sort of thing are produced? Are we seeing certain um, illnesses there. Is that the same thing? Is that equivalent? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And, and, and you know, it, the, the, the amount of, of, of data is, it, well, I guess it's somewhat similar in the case that with, with uh, the Scotchgard chemical, the Teflon chemical, 3M and DuPont had done studies of their own workers. And, 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 and they knew this from you know, many years ago in the 70s and 80s, actually going back to the frickin' 50s in terms of detecting it in human blood and realizing that it accumulated in people's bodies. And they kept that secret until many, many years later, actually the late 90s. And it wasn't until lawsuits were filed against those companies that the, what the companies knew and when they knew it started to actually be disclosed. Um, there was a great movie a few years ago starring Mark Ruffalo called Dark Waters, which explains how one attorney in Cincinnati really like just blew the just blew it all up and then and, and revealed how those two giant multinational corporations knew that their chemistry knew that these chemicals were causing harm. We're in our water supply. We're in our bodies. We're in, you know animals and, and the animals that we eat and the food that we eat, and they didn't do anything about it. And, and we're still waiting for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to stop it, you know, to stop the, these companies from continuing to put these chemicals into the environment. So, um, 
you know, like the Roundup situation, um, you know, there were workplace studies uh, in, in the DuPont case. You know, you had workers who were being exposed to really high levels at their Teflon plant in West Virginia. And at one point they found that all they, they had to take all of the female workers out of the Teflon area at one point because many of them had given birth to children with birth defects that were very identical to what the company had found in their animal studies. Oh, no. So, you know, and and, and so there's things like that. And and it's so interesting, right, that 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 not interesting. It's so uh, actually infuriating and and uh, and just sad that with Roundup, for example, um, you know, they knew that these chemicals could cause problems, but they they initially, uh, the Monsanto and some of the other companies that made these chemicals, uh, they build them as more benign, more safe than the alternatives, right? And so they 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 manufactured these corn seeds, for example, and soybean seeds, where a farmer could spray Roundup on their field and it would kill all the weeds, but it wouldn't kill the corn or the soybeans, right? So they genetically modified those crops to do that. Well, you know, number one, it turned out that they sprayed too much of this stuff and then the weeds got smart because that's what evolution does and they became resistant to Roundup. So what are they doing now? They're, they, they, they brushed off, they, they went back to the old, you know, dusty shelves of, of their chemical indexes and they brought back even more dangerous chemicals and they genetically modified crops to to uh, resist you know another chemical called dicamba or another one called 2,4-D and and those chemicals also have some detrimental effects on wildlife and people um, so you know it, it it's one of the you know, the, the, the the thing you hear a lot in this world is whack-a-mole yeah, you know, like the the carnival game where you knock one down and another one pops up, and uh, that's what we're seeing a lot here with a lot of these chemicals that we're talking about. I understand that in the times of your companies, you know, cigarette companies, whatever, would find out bad things about their products and try to bury um, that um, that information or distort it. But we've now seen that it seems like sooner or later it all comes to light. Sooner or later, you're going to be hit with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. Do you think companies have reached a point or will reach a point where they say when they get a bad report and they say, oh, my God, we better fix this now. This looks like a really expensive problem down the road. We better get ahead of it. Uh, you'd like to think that's the case, and, and I, I would like to to, to 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 give your listeners a little bit of hope there. But in my own experience, I'm not saying this as a cynic at all. I'm saying this as a realist that I've read too many memos from from corporate officials saying, "Hey, we know this, but we're not going to do anything until we get caught," because they just think that they won't get caught for so long that when they finally do and, get and caught, you have to pay don't. up. It'll. Yeah, in many cases they don't. I mean, look, 3M and DuPont are still, well, what's left of DuPont. They've gone through a bunch of different corporate structurings to kind of avoid their liability. But 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 they, 
they continue to say that their forever chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, don't cause harm in humans at the levels that we're generally exposed to. Irregardless of the fact that DuPont agreed as part of a, of a lawsuit uh, filed in Ohio and West Virginia, where 70,000 people participated, their blood, they donated their blood, and scientists, independent scientists that were chosen in part by DuPont executives found a correlation between exposure to these chemicals and certain health problems, including kidney cancer and testicular cancer. And DuPont still thought, okay, it doesn't matter, right? We're going to let you, you know, go ahead and sue us. And a federal judge in Ohio allowed DuPont to even choose the cases that would be heard first. And they got crushed by juries, crushed to the point where they agreed to multi-hundred million dollar uh, settlements to settle all of those cases. And yet, and yet they were most recently in court in South Carolina, where all of these communities around the country, including many in Illinois, had sued 3M and DuPont saying, you've contaminated our drinking water, now pay up, right? And they fought that. They fought that until late last year. Those companies agreed to pay several hundred million dollars again for clean water projects. And you've got... You know, the stock watchers that look at these publicly traded companies are saying that's just scratching the surface of what we're facing here. And so now the 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 the, the kind of the, the, the onus or switches to try to figure out how can we how can we destroy these chemicals? Is, is there a way to destroy these chemicals? And so far, you know, scientists are finding in a lab they can do it like, you know, right there in front of you with like a couple of test tubes. But can you do it at a giant water treatment plant that, you know, the Jardine plant that supplies, you know, water for not just Chicago, but, you know, many of the suburbs? Uh, the jury's still out on that. Really? Oh, you know, Michael, I don't know if you have any insight into this. I love to read about medicine and uh medical treatments and obviously especially in the last year or two i've been reading more and more newsletters that talk about this really really frightening uptick in cancer in younger and younger people you know when we've seen you know chadwick boseman of course dying in his early 40s colon cancer is one of the ones named but it's by far not the only one there's a whole there's a whole list of cancers that are showing up decades before we used to see them. You have, have you read anything or studied anything that would indicate why that's happening? It's so that this is, this is uh, one of the biggest conundrums that I've faced as a reporter who writes about these kinds of things, you know, Every now and then you'll have somebody come to you and say, hey, a bunch of people on my block or a bunch of people in my neighborhood got cancer. X and Y and Z must be responsible. And it's almost impossible. I mean, the smartest people who look at this kind of stuff, uh, they say that, you know, it, it, so much of cancer is, is due to, in some cases, just randomness. Right. It could be like you got hit by a virus at a certain point in time or you're genetically disposed or all these different things. Or it could be exposure to chemicals when you were in the womb. Right. All of these things are potentially there. The, the, the best advice that I've seen from scientists and medical experts 
let's just talk about these forever chemicals, the, the, the Scotchgard Teflon chemicals, the, the PFAS chemicals. You know, the National Academy of Sciences came out last year and said, hey, physicians, you should start screening your patients for these chemicals. And if they're at a certain level, you know, they need to be regularly monitored for different kinds of illnesses. You need to be on the lookout for that. Um, So, you know, at least start doing that. Now, in terms of any kind of therapies to deal with that, I don't think they're there yet. But at least, you know, to know early on and then perhaps try to do things to reduce exposure. Uh, might work, but you know they haven't gotten to that point yet. You know, usually when you go, I mean, I was in for my physical a few months ago. My physician didn't ask me if I wanted a, a PFAS, my blood tester for PFAS. It, you know, it was the usual, it was cholesterol and you know some mm-hmm. other things. But uh, you know, they need to get around to that because it's, it, it's very similar. It reminds me of like you know a decade plus ago, I was writing about mercury in pregnant women. You know, eating women who ate a lot of fish would, you know, swordfish, for example, very high levels of mercury. Then they were had very high levels of mercury, and they could transfer it to their children for their, you know, their 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 while the children were still in the womb. And you know, in that case, hey, dial back your your consumption of high mercury fish. And women ended up doing that. You know, there was a there was a study a few years later, despite the the, the scare tactics, t- tactics of the seafood industry, that women were eating just as much seafood, but they were making smarter choices. They were eating, for example, like salmon, stuff that was lower down on the food chain and mm-hmm. didn't have as much mercury as, say, tuna or swordfish. So there are certain things that can be done. And in the case of PFAS, it's more difficult than mercury because it's in so many things. But if we start getting it out of food packaging, if we start getting it out of you know, other consumer products, um, that's going to reduce our exposure. Wow. Um, I've also, you know, you and I have talked about this before, about how when it comes to food, the regulation in Europe is uh, so much more stringent than what we have here. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I may have told you this before that I experienced it firsthand because I'm gluten sensitive and I know exactly what it does to my body and I know all the signs and symptoms. Um, but and everybody a, a few several years ago, my daughter was going to go to school abroad. So I was going to be in Rome and everybody said, oh, you know, you should try the, the bread there. You know, it's a different kind of wheat and it makes less gluten. And, you know, sometimes people who can't eat can't eat bread in the United States, can eat it in Europe. And I was like, yeah, right. And I went there. And then, of course, I was, you know, looking at some pasta and I was like, well, might as well try. Right. And I was I was amazed. I was amazed. Eventually, like a few weeks down the road, it caught up with me. But I was eating, you know, of course, I was like a kid let out of jail. I was eating sandwiches and I was eating pasta for every meal. Um, because I had been away from it for so long. And it really took a long time before my body started developing symptoms. And, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, I realize that we have um, a lot of really powerful lobbies here. But, man, we should really think about adopting some of the food regulations they have in Europe. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's. I think you can say this much. I was actually on the phone 
uh, talking about something completely different with a with a lawyer who once worked for a big food program in in Washington D.C. and you know, it's called the Food and Drug Administration, right? It was created, uh, you know, in the Teddy Roosevelt area back in the turn of the last century. But but what drives the Food and Drug Administration? It's the drugs, right? The the Most of the funding for the Food and Drug Administration comes from drug companies. Most of the work of the Food and Drug Administration is on drug development and review. The food part has, for a very long time, and this is a, man. This is a whole other conversation, <laughs> but but it's been short shifted in terms of funding. Not it doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter which party is in control of Congress or the White House. It doesn't get a lot of attention. And so there are things, there are substances in our food in this country that probably shouldn't be there that were accepted with very little scrutiny based on the regulations and laws in place in the United States. You can talk about different additives or uh, artificial colors and flavors, things like that. Um, You know, uh, how about uh, these PFAS chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why were they allowed? Why were they allowed in, in food wrapping for so long? You look at studies that, that, uh, DuPont did in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, you know, it, it, it killed rats, right? That the animal studies. And so, the, all, what what did they do? They went to the FDA and said, "Ah, oh, we'll just cut the concentration like in half." How's that sound? And the three and, and the FDA basically said, "Okay." And it wasn't until a few years ago that they banned that type of PFAS packaging in 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 food in food you know fast food wrappers and whatnot. And it's really taken consumers and their, you know, and their advocates to put the pressure on retailers. This hasn't been the government. This has been, say, hey, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, what the heck are you doing? Right. Get these chemicals out of your packaging and certain, you know, slowly but surely, you know, the, the, the clothing companies, the, the fast food companies and whatnot are actually doing that without the government telling them to, telling them to do it. It's that consumers get informed and they say, hey, stop doing this. That's what's happening. You know, we need to plan a future get together where we take a lot of time and really dive into what we eat and what it what goes into it and what are the ingredients on boxes or bags that we should be keeping an eye out for. That, I think, would be really valuable, Michael. Sounds good, Joan. Anytime. Okay. Thank you so much. Michael Hawthorne, uh, Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Uh, By the way, um, I don't know if you've looked at... uh, some of the reporting on the on the weather that we are going to expect over the next like 48 hours. I was uh, looking over some of the articles and, you know, it's been very warm today 
It's supposed to be even warmer tomorrow, and yet over the next 48 hours, there's going to be rain. There's going to be thunderstorms. There's going to be rain turning into snow. There's going to be the possibility of tornadoes. Uh, there's potentially going to be hail. Um, you know, I should have said something about this while Michael Hawthorne from uh, the Trib Environmental Reporter was here, because... If this isn't global warming, this is the wackiest weather. I mean, sometimes um, like sometimes it's not unusual for us in the middle of winter to get a warm up. But but this is I mean, by tomorrow night, by Tuesday evening, we're supposed to have these horrible thunderstorms and maybe tornadoes and possibly hail. And then there's going to be this cold front that goes through. And then, you know, we're going to be back to snow and I don't know. Doesn't it sometimes feel like the world is um, trying to send us a message? It it feels a little bit like that to me. Um, One thing I wanted to share with you, you know, from time to time, North Carolina Congressman Jeff Jackson posts um, these little video clips and he tells you, What's going on? The the stuff you can see and read about and the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, He also was he's also very straightforward. And when the North Carolina wrote up new maps that were devised by the Republicans in the state legislature, he posted a audio clip and said, you know what? Um, I've really enjoyed my time in Congress, but there is absolutely no way that I have a chance of being reelected. The district that I came from has now been gerrymandered to the point where there is literally no chance. I mean, this is a really good guy who's gotten a really great following, and there is no chance, zero chance, that he can be reelected, not because his constituents think he's done a bad job, but simply because of gerrymandering and the way that the um, the voters have been divvied up. He um, said, if they, you know, if the Republicans think they've gotten rid of me, they have another think coming because he has decided to run to be the next attorney general in North Carolina. He is, um, there's two Democrats in the primary, and then, of course, whoever wins the primary will go up against whatever Republican is in the race. But um, just like he was shining a light on the ridiculous behind-the-scenes machinations in Congress, he is now shining a light on the completely legal but completely underhanded ways that Republicans are trying to prevent him from becoming the next attorney general. Now, remember, what they're doing is legal, but it is underhanded and it is devious. And I want you to listen to Jeff Jackson explaining what's going on. Listen to this. Let me show you what you can get away with when it comes to money in politics, because it's worse than you think. So I'm running for attorney general in North Carolina, and our primary election is in about 10 days. In the primary, I'm running against a good person, someone I respect, 
And pretty soon one of us will win that primary and that person will go on to the general election to face the guy from the other party. But just last week, a brand new organization called And Justice for All was created and it is now on track to spend $1 million just to beat me in the primary. But here's the kicker. It's funded by the other party. So I'm now running in a primary where the top spender isn't me or my opponent. It's the other party. They've parachuted into this primary by creating an organization that pretends to be funded by my opponent, but isn't. Why would they do that? Only one reason. They've decided to spend a million dollars to try and beat me in the primary because they don't want to face me in the general. And the way they're doing that is by funding an elaborate deception campaign. Just for a sense of scale, my opponent in this primary raised about $40,000. In just the last week, the other party has spent $700,000 on my opponent's behalf. TV, mail, radio, texting, the works. So if you're in North Carolina and you've seen any advertising from my opponent at all, odds are it was part of a deception campaign. And because of a Supreme Court ruling from about 15 years ago, this is totally legal. They can spend an unlimited amount. Massive deception, total darkness. We should do two things about this. First, if you're in North Carolina, you should vote, especially if you don't normally vote in primaries, because a small group of people are trying to screw with our elections. And the best way you fight back is to make sure they fail. Just Google early vote NC. It's real easy. Second, when people talk about getting this kind of money out of politics, it's real serious. This is how elections get bought. And if someone's running for office and they won't give you a straight answer on whether they think this should stop, they don't deserve your support. And when I said I was running to fight political corruption, this is corruption. And the real target is you. The election is March 5th. I'll keep you posted. Yep. A little civics lesson from Jeff Jackson. And uh, isn't it interesting when you really see how the sausage is made? Um, Just um, a little bit before we broke for news, I got a notice uh, that was uh, sent, excuse me, sent out by uh, Mike Quigley, the um, Illinois Democratic congressman, and Brian Fitzpatrick, who's a Democratic congressman, um, from Pennsylvania. Uh, they are the co-chairs. I, I'm pretty sure Fitzpatrick's um, a Democrat. Um, they are co-chairs of the Ukraine caucus. And they have just put out a release that they are introducing a bill to rename the street near the Russian ambassador's residence. Um, they are going to name that street after Alexei Navalny. N- Alexei Navalny, of course, the opposition, the strongest, most prominent opposition leader to Vladimir Putin. Putin tried to poison him. He was um, sent to Germany where he miraculously recovered. And as soon as he was able, he got back on a plane went back to Russia, was taken into custody, and uh, never never saw freedom after that, was moved recently within the last few months to a prison camp in Siberia where um, 
about a week ago, he died. There was a lot of pressure put on Navalny's mother because she wanted the body. She kept asking for the body. They kept telling her that um, there was a chemical problem and they couldn't get the body to her right away. The speculation was that they didn't want, however they had killed him, they were hoping that all the traces disappeared so that even if or when she did a second autopsy, nothing would show up that would incriminate them. Um, and then Navalny's mother said that uh, state officials were pressuring her to cremate him at a private funeral. Nothing open to the public. I don't know exactly what she's agreed to, but she seems like a pretty tough cookie. So my guess is um, she now has possession of her son's body. And... Um, I have no doubt they are ordering their own autopsy. Who knows what, if anything, it will find. But um, this, is the, this is the move. Renaming the street near the Russian ambassador's residence, Navalny Way memorializes his fight for freedom and democracy. When Russians visit our nation's capital, they will remember his unflinching opposition to Putin's dictatorial control. Ooh, Mike Quigley, sticking it to him. Um, one last thing that I want to mention before we um, go to a break. There was a, a, you know, I interviewed last week, I talked to Daniel Biss, a mayor of Evanston. And uh, just today, a statement was released. Apparently, when they had a city council meeting last week afterwards, um, a national, this is what their statement says, a national anti-Semitic hate group organized a number of public commenters to spout anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, racial epithets, graphic and vulgar hateful fantasies, and other offensive and dangerous rhetoric. This was apparently the public comment uh, after the city council meeting. All of us were deeply troubled and shaken by this display, which has been particularly traumatic for our Jewish community. There is no place in Evanston for this type of behavior or hate of any kind. And while we have no reason to believe that any of the individuals who did this are Evanston residents, it's still extremely dangerous. And they talk about how anti-Semitism has been linked with white nationalism and both have fueled violence across the country. Um, they have since muted and removed speakers who violated the ban on threatening personal or abusive language. Um, and, um, at this, at the time of this meeting, they just decided to end, pu um, public comment altogether, understandably. I don't know if we're going to get more information on who organized this. And I'm glad that they think that this was not something that came from within Evanston itself. They wrap it up by saying in Evanston, we believe in robust debate. 
Our elected officials run for office knowing that harsh criticism comes with the territory and we welcome sharp discussions on issues where we sometimes disagree strongly. But we also clearly understand the difference between that kind of discourse and what happened last week. We ask every single member of this community to join us in standing unequivocally against hate, bigotry and bullying so we can build a truly inclusive Evanston that values and welcomes all. City of Evanston reacting firmly and quickly to a group that apparently organized um, people to take over the public comments surrounding the city council meeting in Evanston. You know, I've been nervous, like a lot of people, that we would see ugliness and even potential violence as we get closer and closer to the to the election. And um, certain elements seem to get more and more worked up, especially as it appears that in many places they are losing ground and they are losing elections. It, I think they're going to get uglier before they finally go away. But I do believe they will eventually go away. So all we have to do is not tolerate the ugliness that happens from now till then. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A week from Wednesday on March 6th at the Harris Theater, the Grand Kiev Ballet will be performing. 25 of the 35 dancers in the company are from Ukraine. Two of the principal dancers um, were getting ready. They were on tour. They were getting ready to go back to their country when Russia invaded. They have since decided to relocate to the United States, and they were able to get their children to join them. Um, It's an amazing story, and they also want people to know that um, a portion of the proceeds from this performance will also be helping reconstruction in Ukraine. One of the buildings where they, um, they practice their choreography has been destroyed, and they are going to try to raise enough money to rebuild it. I am uh, very pleased to welcome to our show... And I hope I get the pronunciation right. Katerina Kukar and Alex Stoyanov. <laughs> it's as good as I hello. can do, Alex and Katerina. Uh, hello, hello. You Thanks. do perfect. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you finish up your tour. Russia invades Ukraine. What was the conversation that the two of you had at that moment in time? Well, uh, what? Uh, today, one of the best um, home front uh, weapon is Ukrainian culture for us, and I think uh, this is the most powerful weapon. <clears throat> In particular, the uh, Kiev Grand uh, Ballet um, uh, weapon. Is, this is a dance, which helps to tell not only about the high art of the, our culture, but also about the brutal war in Ukraine. Yeah, and when war started, we was in France. Our troupe also was in France. We had performance Giselle. And uh, one of our dancers, his name is Boris, uh, at the first day when war started, he um, 
leave everything and uh, find the car and go directly to Ukraine to uh, support uh, our countries to save uh, our children. Uh, and uh, also uh, some of our dancers uh, go, go to Ukraine to try to um, pick up their uh, families. So we use the art to share the real pictures of what is happening in Ukraine and provide our support to those uh, who need it the most, children in the world in ballet. Yeah, and today our company, Grand Kiev Ballet, in the United States, we're very excited for this. We have very big tour from Boston to Seattle. It's more than 60 cities and a lot of uh, Ukrainian people, a lot of United people from United States can see our ballet Giselle. It's old classic, French classical ballet, more than 180 years. Uh, and uh, this is a really beautiful performance with beautiful costume decoration. And our artists, Ukrainian artists, uh, can dance with uh, full of uh, heart, full of uh, passion. passion. Yeah. Now, when you we're finishing up your tour and the Russians invaded Ukraine. Weren't your two children still in Ukraine? Yes, it's very, it's a very difficult story for us uh, because uh, we was in uh, uh, France and our children was uh, in Ukraine. And when we started at 5 a.m., the February 24th, uh, our nanny called us and, and called us, and uh, uh, she she was crying and says, uh, "Kate, Alex, I don't know what is this. Uh, uh, here's everything like a rocket explosion." And she is uh, she is the old woman. She doesn't have driver license. She doesn't have nothing. She just was with our daughter, and she say, "I don't know. I don't understand what I what I can do. All cars." Uh, go away from Kiev. It's everything, everything like traffic. It's so like collapse. Yes. Yeah, we uh, we start to call our friends uh, for helping, and uh, we find uh, one of them who can pick up our daughter. But away from Kiev to border for to Poland border, mm -hmm. uh, it was three days. You know, but it takes uh, it takes it, it take three days. But normally. Just ten hour by drive, uh, and this way it was very difficult for our uh, daughter because first time uh, car is broken, they sleep in the uh, old house. Uh, next day, they stop uh, in a special place for refuge. Wow, it's really terrible. Situation. And also, our son was in another place with uh, his um, uh, godfather, and uh, we pick up him uh, in his uh, birthday. Uh, 26th of February, so it's uh, two years ago, and um, uh, from, we take him uh, from uh, Hungary, Hungary uh, border, and it was traffic uh, 40 kilometers with the car, so they went uh, uh, by walk. They go in eight hours to walk. And uh, when I uh, when we meet him, we just I just can uh, hug him and I cried. But he's like a child. Say, Mama, why you cried? Don't cry, please. A few days and we will come back at home. War will finish. 
And I have a, a birthday, you remember? My uh, friends waiting for me. I have to make a big uh, a party. And uh, until today, all our people are suffering. And every day, um, children die. Oh. And do you still have a lot of uh, friends and family still in Ukraine? And if so, what kinds of news are they giving you? Um, yes, my, my mother and father stay in Kiev, and uh, I was in Kiev uh, uh, in December because I, um, because I I'm also head of uh, uh, state uh, ballet main college uh, Ukrainian KSBC, and uh, I had exam with them with the students. I had. Uh, um, we had, uh, we make uh, for them, um, you know, like gala concert uh, for um, end of uh, first um, semester. And I also had the performances in National Opera of Ukraine, the film feat. But uh, I can just explain you one day from life uh, Ukrainian people. In this day, when I had performances, uh, we had six air alarm during the day. And oh. when I started, performance just 20 minutes and air alarm comments again and all patrons all orchestras all artists uh, have to go into uh, bomb shells and uh, wait we, we waited more than one and a half hour and we started again so this oh. is our reality now this is um it's just it's just harrowing and i'm so glad that you and your kids are safe now i want to remind people that this performance is wednesday march 6th it's going to be at the harris theater uh, it's giselle it is the uh key grand kiev ballet and uh, a portion of the proceeds are going to try to help rebuild one of the arts buildings back in ukraine um, I really, you know, we have a very large Ukrainian population in Chicago, and I really hope everybody, uh, everybody turns out for this. If you want to get tickets, you go to my.harristheaterchicago.org, and you should be able to um, bring it up, bring it up there. Um, thank you so much, uh, Katerina and Alex, for coming and telling us about this and sharing your story. I really, thank I really appreciate so it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Take care. Uh, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, often uh, fiction can tell a story, whether it is a political story or a historical story, more effectively even than just straight nonfiction can because when you fictionalize something like when i was telling you the uh, selling kabul about the withdrawal from afghanistan when you see or hear or read about people and their world is created by a playwright or author you don't just learn the facts of a situation you internalize the emotions of it you um can empathize a lot more with a situation when when you learn about it in a way that creates an emotional reaction 
inside of you. Most of the authors, as you well know from listening to this show, who I talk to are all about history and all about nonfiction. Uh, we're going to break that mold a little bit today. I'm, um, I'm welcoming Tommy Orange to our radio show. Tommy, I hope you're well today. I am. Uh, it's a little bit of a nervous day because the book comes out tomorrow, but I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, um, if there was ever a book that was primed to be a bestseller, this is it. I read a Ron Charles book club newsletter in the Washington Post, and I had bookmarked a review he did of your book, and it wraps up this way. It's not too early to say that Orange is building a body of literature that reshapes the Native American story in the United States. Book by book, he's correcting the dearth of Indian stories, even while depicting the tragic cost of that silence. As one lost character in Wandering Stars says, I want to come home. Orange is getting that place ready. Wow. And then, I, and then I was paging through the Wall Street Journal um, book review section on Saturday, and Sam Sachs has also decided to write about wandering stars. Um, he says the book begins with an essay on the origins of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School run by Lieutenant Richard Henry Pratt. Now, that first essay, is that a nonfiction essay? Well, like uh, their their prologue, um, it has a nonfiction tone. I never wrote it as nonfiction or essay. People, a lot of people call it that, and I don't mind what they call it. Uh, prologue, whatever it wants, and that's why I like prologues. And then, apparently, after that opening prologue, you have a. And correct me if if Sam Sachs is wrong here. It says what follows are a series of fictionalized biographical sketches. Um, and that you tell the story of what happened uh, at this place through various people uh, involved. Um, give, please give the listeners a better description of the book than I just was able to manage. <laughs> so in a way, it's a sequel as it follows up uh, one of the families from the first book. Um, that is Red there, Feather there. and Bear Shield. Bear Shield family. Yes, from there, there. Um, but that doesn't happen until after 100 pages of this historical section. Um, so the historical section is uh, the family line. Um, it goes generations back from from this family that we center on for the rest of the book. And starting with the Great Massacre in 1864, um, this character ends up at a prison castle, which ends up being the the, found, the foundational sort of three-year moment for the boarding, the Indian boarding schools that um, goes on for decades after that. So we follow this this young man fleeing a massacre, him ending up at a prison castle. The experience he has there ends up being formative for the Indian boarding schools through Richard Henry Pratt. This guy's son, Jude Starr, his son, ends up in that boarding school. And that did happen. Prisoners uh, came to trust Richard Henry Pratt enough to even send their children to his school when they when he made it uh, in 1879, and then we follow uh, basically generations down how how they ended up this family line how they ended up in Oakland 
and the book picks up in 2018 in the aftermath of of um, what happens after the powwow in there there and this sort of harrowing tale of this family and and how they recover from experiencing the shooting and ha- and having uh, Orville Redfeather having been shot but how they how they get through that time together. How did you research this story? What were your sources? Um, I just, there's a lot of different books on these different time periods. The the Sand Creek Massacre part at the beginning comes from a family story that my dad used to tell, so that's not researched. Um, There's a book called uh, War Dance at Fort Marion um, that was crucial for the, 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 where I write about um, St. Augustine, Fort Marion, Prison Castle Times. and um, another a book called The Real All-Americans that I read. But I, I don't end up including a ton of historical information. It's much more character-driven. Mm-hmm. I just need to read. I need to read a lot of research to, to convince myself that I can write in these different time periods. Well, your first book, Here, Here, I'm sure you know, was selected by the Chicago Library System as the one book, one Chicago read. And I believe that one was nominated for a Pulitzer, was it not? Yes, it was. And yet, was that six years ago that you published that one? Yeah, it'll be six years in June. So uh, you've spent a lot of time and love on Wandering Stars. Yes, uh, both books. It'll be 12 years of my life, and um, I won't be writing a third book. I think I've... I've, uh, had my time with these characters in this world, and I'm, I'm moving on. Moving on to what next? Something still having to do with Native Nations people? Sure. I mean, I'll always be writing through the lens that is me, and I'm a Native person. Um, and I think most authors write from their own perspectives for the most part. Um, I, 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 I am working on a third book that's not related to the first two books. It's a contemporary book set in Oakland. Um, and I just finished uh, a screenplay for a feature film, so we'll see where that goes. Based on one of the books or an original screenplay? An original screenplay. Wow. Now, you're a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, and yet, um, even though there is the historical underpinning for this book, a lot of what you write about is sort of the the modern-day experience with Native Nations people. How... Ex- Share with us your experience of being a Native Nations person in a, in a very Western, white kind of world. Well, you know, I grew up in Oakland, in a very diverse community in Oakland. Um, so I, I grew up around a lot of kids that were biracial and from two different places, parents from two different places. Um, so Oakland, you know, is like that. Oakland's very mixed. And my dad is a um, fluent language speaker, so we grew up hearing the Cheyenne language spoken in the house, and we would go back to Oklahoma to visit family, and that was most of my connection to the Native community until in my 20s I started working in the Native community and in the nonprofit sector (laughs) and worked in that for almost a decade and really got to know uh, the, the Native Oakland community in a way that I hadn't growing up. You said your your dad was a fluent speaker. Are are you as well? No, he he didn't uh, he didn't formally teach us 
and wasn't necessarily home enough for us to pick it up just from what he, you know, it was like around dinner time when we would see him and maybe in the morning. So we, we grew up with a certain set of phrases and words, uh, but I, I did not become a phone speaker. My uh, grandparents refused to let my dad and his siblings speak Italian because they so wanted the family to become Americans. So they would speak Italian to one another, but they only ever spoke English to my dad and his brothers and sisters, which really seems tragic to me today. Um, How do you feel? Do you feel, you know, how connected to that particular kind of culture do you feel? Do you feel torn? Because it seems like some of these characters are torn between, you know, who they are and where they come from and the world they have to live in and succeed in. Um, you know, I don't necessarily feel the same way as my characters. Um, I, I don't feel the same disconnection, but I think a lot of Native people... Uh, we tend to be compared to, you know, the real Indians that you learn about in school that are related to the pilgrims and you don't learn anything else. So what, what a lot of white culture thinks of native people is like, we're not, we're we're not the authentic ones unless we're, we look a certain way. And, you know, part of the urban native experience is, is, is one of of finding connection and and it's very intertribal. And, uh, you know, a lot of us, 80% of us native people in general live in cities and we have, you know, office jobs or we like going to football games or basketball games. (laughs) And we often aren't given credit as, as modern humans. We're sort of like held up as, are they these cultural artifacts like to be fascinated by? We're not really allowed the same humanity as other people. Is that what you're trying to get across in this latest work? Um, you know, I, I don't really have a message. Novels tend to be pretty messy and talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, I wanted to focus on this family and and what their healing journey looked like coming away from experiencing this mass shooter event. Um, and when, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk. I have you talk in greater detail about Jude since we are focusing in on the characters here. I'm talking to Tommy Orange. His book, Wandering Stars, comes out tomorrow. Uh, We will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Tommy Orange. Uh, His book, There, There, was a one Chicago read. Um, His new book, Wandering Stars, comes out tomorrow. It starts off with a prologue on uh, the origins of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Uh, There is also a massacre that is experienced by one of the main characters, Jude Starr. It's the Sand Creek Massacre, which, Tommy, I don't know a great deal about. Can you explain what you know about the massacre and then how you walked your character through it? Yeah, I think the most remarkable or horrifying thing about the Sand Creek Massacre um, is that it was mostly, it was 700 men. They were volunteer militia um, led by Colonel John Shivington, 
um, November 29th, 1964, 19, sorry, 1864. And uh, the, the camp that they attacked, not only was there a peace treaty there and we were told to, to fly an American flag and a white flag uh, to indicate that not, you know, that there was peace between us. Um, it was mostly men or mostly women and children and elders uh, that they attacked. So 700 men killed about 230, mostly women, children, and elders. That's, you know, that's the most sort of remarkable part of why that, that, it was devastating for our tribe specifically and, and just a really awful mark on the United States, um, the, a history that we don't often want to look at as, as part of what we, were, what we were doing to Native people at that time. So, so the, the second part of your question is about Jude Starr Jude and Star. him getting away from Yes, and, and so he flees that, and he sort of takes a little boy with him, and he's just kind of wandering. He meets um, a character named Bear Shield, and um, this was uh, a prisoner named Bear Shield was actually at the prison castle. I found a list of the names of the, the characters there, and there was a, a character named Star there as well. So this was from from research that I did. They are sort of wandering for a while, and, and tensions are really building between um, Cheyenne people, other tribes, and the U.S. government. And there's a murder. Um, a family named called the Germans are attacked, and they round up a whole bunch of um, Southern Cheyennes and put them on a train from Oklahoma all the way to Florida. I'm still not sure what the logic was there. I'm sure there were other prisons around they could have put them in. But for whatever reason, this was some kind of experiment. They, they sent them to Florida, and, and they they started up this um, sort of reprogramming thing where they were Christianized. Um, they were told only to speak English. They were militarized. They had to cut their hair um, for for three years, and you know, and they they learned how to read and write too. And um, Jude Star goes through this experience, and eventually his son gets sent to the boarding school that that uh, he was sort of the seed of. And you said, um, or um, I was reading, I think in uh, the thing Ron Charles read, that the experience of the of the massacre leaves Jude mute? Yes. Is it difficult to write about a character when that character is not going to be um, giving you a lot of monologues or uh, interactions uh, with other characters? Well, fortunately, um, part of the way that I write is from the inside out. Um, I tend to explore a lot of interiority in in figuring out who my characters are. And in the case of Jude, you know, we just spend a little bit of time um, him observing things around him and uh, not necessarily hearing from him. Um, so it, there, it is a challenge, um, but I think... Sometimes limitations can bring about um, things that wouldn't otherwise be there. And, and with Jude Star and the challenge of not, him not being able to speak, I think I was able to explore a certain kind of interiority and, and, and a journey through this part of his life when he's coming back from, from the prison castle and, and figuring out um, sort of life after that. And, and eventually he actually gets his voice back. Um, Ron... Um Ron Charles in the Washington Post writes, 
during one of many poignant moments in Orange's new novel, Wandering Stars, an Indian woman goes to a public library in the late 1950s and asks, what novels are written by Indian people? The librarian tells her she doesn't think there are any. There are still a lot of libraries right now in the United States where that would be the answer. Um, but I'm, but I, over the last decade or so, I've been reading more and more really interesting work by Native American authors. Tommy, are Native American authors having a moment? You know, I've heard it called uh, a new renaissance, um, and there's a lot to that. The fact that there's another renaissance because there's been others, it, it implies that there have been deaths. If there's a rebirth, there's a death, and there's been multiple deaths of interest in Native stories. Um, so we kind of had a renaissance after the Civil Rights um, Movement, and we we occupied the island of Alcatraz in San Francisco, and we're on national TV, and that brought a lot of attention to uh, public view and, and interest in Native stories. And again, there was a, a surge uh, after Dances with Wolves swept the Oscars. I know it sounds ridiculous, but um, <laughs> these kinds of things, they drum up public interest um, in Native stories. And we're probably going to see something like it, you know, after Killers of the Flower Moon, whatever happens at the Oscars. Um, I hope Lily Gladstone wins. Um, but it happened after Standing Rock in 2016, and that's kind of what there there was came out of uh, that surge in public interest that after the Standing Rock protests that happened at the end of 2016. Um, so you could you could call it a moment, but this particular renaissance, if we have to call it that, it seems to be lasting longer than a moment. So if There There was a huge success um, for a Native book, um, and that was in 2018, we were about six years in, and lots of reasons to believe this is going to keep going. And, you know, th there's more representation for Native people. The, the publishing industry is more diverse. Um, there's more interest in, in, you know, our stories for, for TV and for and for film. Uh, so I, I don't like the idea of a moment because because of what I just explained as a history mm -hmm. of sort of the death, the death of interest in our stories. So I, I think there's definitely something happening, and it means a lot of open doors for Native people, and I just hope that that continues. You know, lately uh, we've seen in some states um, anything to do with the LGBTQ community or, or racial uh, history um, has been limited in some places because the new belief is that students should never learn anything that upsets them which, as near as I can tell, pretty much eliminates any teaching of the interactions between white people and Native Nations people in this country. When you see those kinds of efforts to cleanse history, what goes through your mind? I mean, it's, it's both enraging, but also... Um, the way it's been for so long, it's not, so it's unsurprising and that maybe there's some part of me that's, uh, numb to it or, um, it's hard to, to stay enraged about something that's been consistently the same way. So I think part of why I am, I write is to, to help tell our stories from our perspective and, and, 
take a sober look at what history actually looks like, considering everything and not just considering the parts that make for good patriots or whatever their thinking is around uh, sterilizing um, American history. I, on this show, I run with a very broad definition of what is political. I believe pretty much there is politics in every aspect of life, but many people take um, a much more narrow view of that word. Would you describe yourself as political? I think um, I think Native people um, can't really help it, and and like you said, these educational institutions from the very beginning um, they are telling either a false history or or it is a lie by omission kind of history and, and for those of us who grew up with native parents who are outspoken and know the history we come home from school with with these lies or with this absence of our story and uh, we we're, we're sort of, by default, we become politicized, I think, in a way, by the extreme nature of the way this country tells story about stories about itself or, or fails to tell stories about us. And I think politics is all about storytelling and narrative and mm-hmm. control of the narrative. And, um, and I think there's a lot more people, I'm sure you would agree, are political who don't think they are. There's, you know, there's a lot of inaction that is political. There's a lot of silence that is political, but people think politics is, you know, this, this one narrow thing, like you said. Do you have any plans to uh, do a book tour um, anywhere around the Chicago area? I don't think I'm going anywhere near Chicago um, on this, I was I was just there, like you said, for the one book in Chicago. I was really grateful uh, that my book was picked for that and, and had a great time while I was there. But I don't think this uh, in, the, in the coming two months I am touring and I don't think I'm I'm very close to Chicago. OK, well, if that changes, please let me know, because I'd like to let our audience know when if they could uh, come see you and hear you live and in person. Though live on the radio is pretty good, too. Yeah, thank you so much for for that offer. And if if anything changes, I will let you know. Okay, it's a deal. Uh, Tommy Orange, new book is Wandering Stars. Tommy, it is an honor to talk to you. Uh, Thank you for taking this time with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That is going to do it for me today. Uh, Driving It Home with Patty Vasquez is next. Richard Chu is here tomorrow at 6 a.m. I will be here tomorrow at 2 Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends, and good night.